0: Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast.politicology.com at or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, we're bringing you another Explained episode where we take a question we get frequently from our listeners and take a deep dive to explain it. If you have any questions you'd like us to cover on upcoming Explained episodes about the recent election, the transition to the Biden administration, our mission, or anything else, you can reach us at podcast at lincolnproject.us. Now let's get into it. So over the last week, all eyes have turned to Georgia as they prepare for a January 5th election for both Senate runoff races. Now, these elections will determine which party controls the Senate. And based on the reporting about Mitch McConnell's plans, they'll determine whether Biden can run his administration without an obstructionist Senate. Today, we're going to break down how Georgia runoff races work and what it's going to take to win both of those seats. To help us do that, we have my fellow Lincoln Project co founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. Thanks for being on again, Mike. Always a pleasure, Ron and legendary ad maker, a veteran of five presidential campaigns, and author of the New York Times bestseller, It Was All a Lie. Stuart Stevens is also a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, and it's always great to have you back, Stuart.
1: Great to be here, man. Thanks.
0: So before we dive in, we're talking about two runoff races for the Georgia Senate seats, one between Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock, and the other between David Perdue and John Ossoff. Mike, can you help us understand how runoffs work and what makes them unique in Georgia? How did we get to this particular point?
2: So the state of Georgia changed its rules uh, to require that a a statewide elected official for federal office must get over 50% of the vote. And if you don't, then there's a runoff where the top vote getter will be seated 90 days, 60, 90 days after the uh, November election, which puts us off to a January 5 date. So, in many ways, you couldn't think of a better way to, to, to get low voter turnout than to have a special election in January, again, in a southern state, in order to kind of have a partisan advantage here. I don't want to suggest that's exactly what's going on here. I'll, I'll, maybe Stuart can give us some insight into some of that, but mm-hmm. that's essentially the way it works. It is a little bit unique. There are not a whole lot of states that do it. It is a little bit peculiar, but it is what it is, and we stand where we stand at this point in time.
0: So, Stuart, generally, when we think of runoffs in Georgia as favoring Republicans, can you talk about what factors lead to Republicans generally being more successful in these types of elections?
1: Yeah. First, you have to go to the history of runoffs in the South. And pretty much, um, it's a true statement that they were invented to stop blacks from winning statewide elections. And pretty much, they've worked Uh, As planned. The idea being that you would probably have one African American candidate and a bunch of white candidates. So if uh, the odds of the African American candidate getting north of 50% were not great, uh, they could win with a plurality, however. So you want to have a runoff. So then you'll have, if an African American makes it into the runoff, you have one African American and then uh, one white uh, candidate. And all the other the supporters of the the white candidates who didn't make the runoff will vote for the white candidate. That was the idea behind it, and it has worked almost with near perfection. There are very few I'm trying to think of any statewide elected African American officials where you have this runoff. It's it's sort of a reaction to Reconstruction. Um, where they're trying to come up with a way to have a system that allowed blacks to vote, but limited their ability to win. Hopefully, this is going to change. Hopefully, we're not going to win this race. I think it's doable. But it's an uphill push for that reason.
0: So, Mike, there's a report in the Upshot from the New York Times that shows Biden ran ahead of Hillary Clinton in the well-educated, wealthy, and increasingly diverse areas around Atlanta. Now, just a couple of decades ago, this area would have been one of the most reliably Republican strongholds in the state. So there's a lot to talk about and unpack in this story. So before we get to how that shift could impact the races, can you explain what was happening demographically in Georgia and what we saw play out in Biden's performance of the vote?
2: Yeah, this is really very important because it goes back to, um, frankly, it goes back to the origin story of the Lincoln Project and what we were trying to accomplish. We had always set the predicate that what we were trying to move, this small sliver of voters, was going to be college-educated white voters. We then found a a new opening uh, during the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, um, in March when senior 65 plus voters started to move away from Donald Trump. Taking that demographic data and what was happening, we recognized that there are a couple of key areas in the country where there are an overrepresentation of those two demographics. And they increasingly are in Southern states with the exception of the Deep South. They're the Sunbelt states that run basically from North Carolina all the way swooping down up into California. That includes, of course, states like Georgia, Arizona, and Texas, all states, which close observers will recognize we focused on intently. The key was, could the Lincoln Project move enough of those two demographics away from their historical Republican voting pattern to put them in the win column for Joe Biden? And it was also, there's a third leg to that stool, voters of color. In the in the South, the traditional South, of course, the largest percentage is African American voters. There's an increasing number of Latino voters, but it's still overwhelmingly black. In the Southwest, it is Mexican Americans, Latino voters. And so when we look at the two states where we did have an impact using what we did what we started to call the new Southern strategy, was moving Republican college-educated voters that rejected the dog whistling. Of the old Dixiecrat, old Southern strategy that really built the modern Republican Party. And I think that the evidence that, again, the hard evidence, not polling data, not exit polling data, the actual precinct analysis that shows where vote totals were coming from, the dramatic overperformance and movement away from the Republican candidate, in this case, Donald Trump, to Joe Biden came specifically from those Atlanta suburbs where there's a a density of college-educated white voters and seniors 65-plus. In other words, a long, geeky, nerdy, mathy way of saying the strategy worked exceptionally well. And it's also, well, I think we get the precinct data back from states like Pennsylvania and Arizona. We're going to see that the strategy worked equally as well. I don't want to denigrate any of our partners here because everybody's efforts, especially in a close election, are extremely important. But quantifiably, there is no way to suggest that we were not correct. We we hit a bullseye. We were looking at the demographics. We were looking at the states. And again, I don't think this is a one-off. I think it portends a political realignment that is going to be happening in this country led largely by whites, college-educated whites. That's kind of the surprise here. A lot of the focus in the past few decades have been on trying to get more and more increase in the African American vote or the Latino vote. What is moving states like Arizona, Texas, and Georgia into play is a combination of increased voter of color turnout, but also, I would argue, just as, or maybe even more importantly, a shift away from these types of politics, from college-educated Republicans who are saying, I've had enough, no more defending the Confederate flag, no more racial dog-whistling, the law and order nonsense has to go away, I'm going to vote for uh, Democrats, even though I may not agree with them on a lot of economic issues, because culturally, I can't accept doing this anymore.
0: So Stuart, before we started rolling, you had a question for Mike about the proportion of Black voters relative to the increase in, uh, in, in the white electorate. Do you want to ask that again for the benefit of our listeners? I thought that was a good question.
1: Yeah, what I was uh, interested in looking at the data was whether or not this increase of white voters was a result of increase in white population as a percentage of the total electorate in a situation which you have more white voters and a stagnant number of African Americans. And Mike, give a good explanation. Why don't you go through that, Mike?
2: So, so the question is really a fundamental one when you approach a campaign, and what Stuart was asking is. If the black share of the vote is static and there's an increasing share of the white population, shouldn't we see a correlate increase in the share of the white vote? Uh, possibly, but that doesn't appear to be what happened here. And again, it's it's not just because this happened in Georgia. This actually happened everywhere. It happened in places like California. So, So what happened? Well, what happened was we saw an overperformance, frankly, in the Republican share of the electorate where Republicans were showing up in droves, but there's two types of Republicans. There's this non-college-educated, low-propensity white voter that was voting almost exclusively for Trump. Trump Trumping on the ballot is why they came out. So he did. He was successful in bringing these voters in higher numbers. This shrunk the percentage of the African-American vote in places like Georgia, but a funny thing happened on the way to the voting booth, and that is enough college-educated Republicans and enough seniors, sixty-five plus, especially in the suburban communities, which are which are
0: traditionally Republican audiences.
2: All tradi- it's all based Republican vote. We moved, uh, you know, along with our allies, enough Republicans off of Donald Trump and towards Joe Biden, but they were still voting Republicans because they're Republicans, down ticket as a check against what they viewed as the excesses of the Democratic Party. That explains how for the first time really in American history, you can have historically high turnout where the president, the Republican incumbent loses, but Republicans have a good night's down ticket. So what we're seeing in Georgia explains exactly what happened in other states, very different, um, like California, for example. You can have the Republican candidate lose at the top because there were enough Republicans defecting from the top of the ticket, but there was also a commensurate turnout spike that he actually drove of very low propensity Republican voters. The, the, the conundrum there is it makes the black share of the vote lower as a percentage, And so that's one thing that we're going to have to work on rectifying is if we're going to be successful in Georgia, there's going to have to be a higher percentage of African-American voters combined with what we just did uh, last November on on election night, which is keeping those college-educated Republican voters uh, from, from swinging back. I'm going to suggest that that's going to be a tall order because many of them actually did not vote for Trump but did votes down ticket for Republican candidates for Senate and U.S. House of Representatives. Right. So we've right. got to work cut out for us.
1: Ron, I would say, you know, as a seventh generation Mississippian, that these trends that Mike is talking about are, are evident throughout the South. Now, Georgia, particularly Atlanta, has always seen itself as, um, as they famously coined the phrase back in the civil rights days, the city too busy to hate. That Georgia wanted to be a, uh, a a state that set the mark in the Deep South for um, embracing the future, uh, led by industries like you know, Coca Cola, and then later by CNN. Um, I think that you, when I worked for Johnny Isaacson, the senator, longtime senator from Georgia, you could see this trend happening in the suburbs where these voters, and Isaacson was seen as a moderate uh, Republican, and you you could see them being drawn to it and rejecting more divisive, hard-right Republican candidates in primaries. But if you take a state like my home state of Mississippi, I think what you saw uh, on November uh, 3rd is the same thing you saw earlier in the summer when the state of Mississippi, for the first time, uh, took down the state flag. Um, which was basically the Confederate battle flag. Um, it's the last state to do that. And that was led by a coalition of, um, well, African-Americans, of course. with Mississippi as the largest percentage of African-Americans. But they had been against the state flag for a long time, and it wasn't enough votes to get it taken down. It was really this business community that saw it as negative and just a total image of... Uh, what you want the state to be. Sports teams played an important role, college football coaches. And I really think that this is where the South is headed. You know, I, I think your average suburban teenager uh, in Atlanta or Mississippi, white suburban teenager, looks to black rap stars as uh, cultural models more than Robert E. Lee. I mean, they, they, they live in that same world that the rest of the world. And I think, you know, people from the South hate whites, a lot of hate to get off that plane and be looked at as that Southerner. You know, with that expectation that you're that one who is presumed to be prejudiced. And it's bad for business. It's terrible for business. And I think a increasing dynamic that you're going to see reflected across the South.
2: How remarkable is it to be able to work with Stuart Stevens oh on God. realigning realigning the 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 southern
1: knowledge?
0: It, it really it, is it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Stuart, how many Georgia runoffs have you worked?
1: Oh, I've done I'm not sure the exact number, but four or five runoffs in Georgia? The Republicans, I mean, look, this I think this race is doable. Um, the scenario to to win is for this group of college educated voters to take uh, energy from the fact on November 3rd, they did something that everyone said they couldn't do. They carried the state for Joe Biden and not Donald Trump. Yeah.
0: Let me hold that thought because I want to go there. But before we do that, I want to ask you about runoffs in general. And then, and then we'll speak to this one specifically. Yep. So, Stuart, historically speaking, what are the most effective strategies for Democrats to win runoffs in Georgia or in the South in general? And, uh, and then with the, with the benefit of perspective, what do you think it's going to take for Warnock and Ossoff to win both of these seats?
1: Well, you know, the general assumption in runoffs is that they will have less voters than in the, the first election. But that's not always the case. I worked in this uh, race that was a Republican primary. Um, There's a runoff between Thad Cochran and Chris McDaniel, and Chris McDaniel was sort of a precursor candidate to Donald Trump. Cochran had been a longtime senator. We avoided losing that race. We came in second, uh, but it went into a runoff because there was a third-party candidate who got just enough votes to stop uh Chris McDaniel from getting 50%. So we went into a runoff three weeks later. And everybody involved, including myself, would have predicted that both candidates would see a decrease in votes. And it didn't happen. Both candidates saw an increase in votes. And one of the ways that we were able to win this for Ted Cochran um, was to motivate African American voters to come and vote for the Republican. And the message was that the next senator is going to be picked in this Republican primary. Do you want someone who has been, uh, to use that phrase we used to use a lot in the South, good on race, which is Stag Cochran, or someone who would run a racially divisive campaign? It was Chris McDaniel. So I, I think the, the model to win this race for Democrats is to take energy from having just pulled off an historic feat. You beat Donald Trump in Georgia. Nobody said you could do that. That's always invigorating. You know, teams that go that aren't supposed to make the playoffs to go into the playoffs always have a lot of energy rather than the teams that, you know, are expected to and kind of drag their way into the playoffs. And I think that if you can frame the race about what it says about Georgia, a sort of past versus future, as as Mike was saying you know, rejection of the Mitch McConnell posing in front of the Confederate flag versus an embrace of a new South. I think that that can be a winning combination. There's always an energy to the possibility to do something that's never been done before, to send the world a signal. And I think if uh, that can be harnessed here and early voting can uh, continue to be in favor, and some of these uh, Trump voters in theory I think that they're raising their hopes now by saying that he's going to win still, which is ridiculous. He's not going to win. And by the time people vote, the electors will have voted and he's not going to be the best president of the United States. So I think you're going to have a kind of double whammy there potentially of, you know, not only did the Trump voters lose on November 3rd, but then when they were told that they were really going to win, they didn't. They were allowed yeah. to. Yeah. and. I, 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 I think that that's dispiriting to voters. Plus, there is an element of all of this Trump recount. The language of it is really more about disenfranchising minorities than anything else. Yeah. All the code language, the cities, the fraud, the, you know, they're not saying that there's voter fraud out in rural counties in right. Uh, Iowa.
0: Right.
1: You know, they're, they're saying, or even rural counties in Georgia. Um, So, it's it's sort of a continuation of a Jim Crow mentality that if African Americans are voting in large numbers, there must be something corrupt here. And there must be a way to stop that.
0: So, Mike, we've got several factors at play here. And one of them is the down-ballot success that you mentioned earlier that Republicans had in Georgia. Then we've got the anticipated depression among Trump voters when it becomes clear that Joe Biden won Georgia and they're forced to acknowledge that. How do you think about those two factors affecting one another and the races at large? And what is it going to take? What are you looking for in the numbers for both Warnock and Ossoff, both of them, to win these seats? Because as we know, it's going to take winning both of these seats to get to 50-50, which will actually give Biden a chance to govern. That's
2: right. So there are actually three factors uh, at play here. One which is very difficult for Republicans, two which I think are trickier for Democrats. So let's start with the Republicans. The first is, uh, to your and your uh Stewart's point, the challenge of getting these low propensity, uh, non-college educated white voters that came out for Donald Trump is likely to be more difficult without Trump on the ballot, especially since Biden won the race and the enthusiasm is no longer there. That's a really essential uh, ingredient for success for Republican Senate candidates uh, going into January. And that's where you're going to see most of the resources, effort, and energy focused on the Republicans. Mike Pence is showing up. Donald Trump is tweeting already. There's 250 Republican staffers from other battleground states that have moved to Georgia. This is all in efforts to pull out And replicate that turnout that they got, that historic turnout from this demographic. They've got to get it to win. Now, let's move over to kind of the the middle uh, piece, which is where we focused our effort and energy, college-educated white voters in the suburbs and seniors 65-plus. Again, pulled this off. We did it, I think, quite well. The challenge for us is going to be knowing that many of these voters were voting for divided government. These are Republicans now who showed up and voted for Joe Biden- but voted for Republican House and Senate members down ticket. The key here, and I believe this will be the critical piece of the race, is going to be can we convince them to continue to vote for um, Democrats to give them the majority when they were essentially already voting for divided government? There was a rejection of the extremism embodied in Donald Trump, but it was also a check on the excesses of kind of the progressive left that they were hearing so much about on the media that they were consuming. These voters were constantly Justly splitting their ticket, voting for divided government—that's where they're at. Our job is to try and convince them otherwise and move them in a slightly different direction. The third piece is the African American vote, the black vote. And now we did see a raw number—the actual number of African American voters turn out in bigger numbers than we have ever seen before. Okay, so that's going to have to be replicated. The challenge is with the upsurge that we also saw in these kind of Trump white rural non-college educated voters the actual share of the black lo- vote in georgia dropped to 2006 levels so it's going to have to overperform this model and that is going to be a battleground is who shows up more in bigger numbers will it be black voters or will it be rural whites and can we get the break from the college educated suburban voters lincoln project voters in order to put those uh, b- to put this back in the win column for the democrats tall order for both sides, doable, as Stuart says, going to take a hell of a lot of work, um, and all in a very short time frame. But, but all three of those are really the dynamics upon which the Georgia uh, special elections will be determined.
0: I just want to highlight for folks these numbers from the Upshot report on the shifts among different demographics of the electorate becoming more Democratic than they did Republican. And those those shifts were among high income voters they became 7 points more democratic majority college grads became 6 points more democratic suburban voters became 6 points more uh 65 plus became 5 points more obama trump areas 5 points more and then even rural voters white less educated voters and majority black voters all became 1 point more uh democratic in this vote What do you make of that? And do you think those shifts are going to continue? Are they going to persist? Well, look,
2: I think that they will. And this, again, was a basic premise of what the Lincoln Project was trying to do. For the first time, we were leaning into the white electorate and winning on cultural issues. Not a majority, but enough to win. Right. These people were not voting for Joe Biden because they were worried about their 401k or they thought that he had a better tax policy or because they thought he would handle the economy better. In fact, they were saying the exact opposite. So why did they move? They moved off because they were tired of the racial dog whistling and the embodiment of what the Republican Party had become. To Stewart's point, this is not just a Trump dynamic. This has been happening for a while. But Donald Trump stepped on the gas and accelerated this dynamic. It becomes socially unacceptable to support Donald Trump because of who he is and who he embodies and where he wants to take the Republican Party. So it was, it was. in many ways, it was a little bit risky because we knew that we were not going to win a majority of Republican votes by leaning into cultural issues on our advertising, but we knew that we could get just enough. We knew that we could peel just enough of those college-educated voters who are saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't be a part of this anymore. And that was the, the changing dynamic. I do not think that those voters go back. Okay. I don't think that they're like, well, you know what? Okay. Maybe Donald Trump was, was a racist. and I'm not going to vote for him this time, but maybe somebody else who's going to support those policy positions I will vote for. I do believe that this is part of a generational change kind of to Stuart's point. The culture of the South is changing, at least in many parts of it. And it has been for some time. And that is something that we were leaning into. And again, it's something that personally I'm proud of because, you know, it's changing a lot of what the Republican Party decided to do in the 60s and 70s by appealing to d- Dixiecrats and racial dog whistling. What we're saying is not only is that no longer acceptable, but the Lincoln Project and like-minded Republicans are going to bury that strategy and we're going to use similar tactics to, 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 again, make sure that that type of politics is erased from this country's history as well as the party's history. And it's kind of uh, exciting to be part of that.
0: Stewart, last question to you: Given the number of times you've been in exactly this situation, in terms of you know runoffs in the South, how would you advise both Ossoff and Warnock going into this race? What would you tell them to do?
1: Yeah, I think this is a tremendous opportunity for Georgia. That's very rare. Um, First of all, the whole world is going to be watching it. I mean, it's very rare that you have Senate races that aren't part of a larger narrative where other Senate races are going on, and presidential races. This is it. This is a Super Bowl. This is the only thing people are going to be watching. So the impact of what it says about Georgia is going to be exponentially larger than a regular election call it. And I think it's a chance for Georgia to really redefine itself as embracing the future. It would be tremendously positive across the Georgia economic landscape. cultural landscape. And, you know, it's not just Atlanta suburbs. Um, It's no coincidence that that Donald Trump went to Macon, which is the fourth largest town in Georgia, because Macon has these same voters that are turning to embrace a new south. And, you know, Macon's had this culture before, you know, it's where the Allman brothers are from. And uh, there's there's an excitement to that. So I think the path to win is to tantalize these voters with uh, the possible. Like we have a chance to make history again. How rare is that? Um, I think there's an underdog energy to it. Let's show them we can do it. Let's let's don't let the uh, the machine beat us. Let's be scrappy. And you put all that together, and you get some good early vote. Hopefully, um, some new voters are going to be registered in this period. Uh, Georgia voters have until December seventh, and uh, you know. You run the race uh, 10 times, probably Republicans win six, but that's not to say you can't win those four.
0: This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.